This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print, continuing our long-standing promise to look at graphic novels as Jacob and I are back in our Batman podcast looking at Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. Now, The Killing Joke, out of all these series we've been talking about, this is the one that I read earliest. I read this when I first got into collecting. This came out in 88, just a year before Tim Burton's Batman movie. I bought this. I was in seventh grade. The Batman film had already come out, but I bought it from a friend in junior high. I paid him like five bucks, which was like the most I ever spent on a comic. It was already in like three or four printings. And I'm just going to say it now. This is not a book that a 12 year old should probably be reading. Probably not. But then again, maybe it, there's a lot implied, not a lot shown. So maybe so. But I, of course, as I've said in, all of these books and nachos podcasts haven't read any Batman comics before, at least no dedicated Batman ones, a couple crossovers he did. I do remember I read Batman versus the Hulk also, <laughs> but I'd heard a lot about the killing joke. You can't not read comics and read comic sites and not hear a lot about the killing joke. Listening to the Batman commentaries and special features, hear a lot about the killing joke. It was almost like a clockwork orange where it ended. Fine. I'll read the killing joke, <laughs> but it's, Helped along by the fact that it's written by Alan Moore, who I've read Watchmen, I've read V for Vendetta, and while my takes on both of those may not be quite as enthusiastic as the majority of comic fans, again, perhaps because I read them when they were close to 30 years old apiece, here I was still intrigued to see what he could do, but I was surprised that he would write Batman because this was after Watchmen, after V for Vendetta, right? And he'd been doing his own stuff. Was he doing superheroes? Oh, yeah. He's got a lot of superhero stuff. He was one of the early British writers and artists to come over. There was the UK invasion in the 80s and 90s. Uh, U.S. comics were pretty much taken over by European writers. And he was one of the early ones. I mean, in 82, 83, he took over Swamp Thing and pretty much created the Vertigo imprint, which is a mature uh, imprint for DC Comics because he just took that kind of take with the character, but he's done Superman. Whatever happened to the world of tomorrow, where we talked about with Batman year one, how that was this beginning of this new continuity because crisis on infinite earth. Well, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, this two issue Superman story that was closing out that old version of Superman. And he was the one that wrote it. It's considered a classic. He's done spawn and wildcats i mean he has dipped his toe a lot into mainstream comics green lantern it's something he's really removed himself from uh, we can do a whole podcast just talking about alan moore and his relationship with the comic <laughs> book industry yeah he's done a lot of superhero stuff and it wasn't until later in his career where he started moving away from that and, and doing things like league of extraordinary gentlemen but he he's always done superhero stuff I, That's funny because I just kind of pictured after Watchmen that he just went off and became a recluse because he seems to kind of not. Does he still write? Uh, yeah, he's been working on this like 
900, 1,000 page novel called Jerusalem, I believe that he's been working on forever, but he still writes. He, he's still does interviews. He's actually doing like a fanzine about creating herbal gardens and anarchist politics <laughs> for a while. It, it was pretty cool. Well, I was happy with his take here. Now, I will say I read a more recent trade paperback of this. We've been kind of going into the format where we watched it because with comics, it really does matter. And what I read was a recolored version. I guess that the original artist had never been happy with the colorings of the original. And so I got to see, I guess, the special edition of The Killing Joke. Yeah, so like I said, I have the third or fourth printing of the original. So it has the original coloring. I did check out uh, the deluxe edition. Uh, it costs like 20, 30 bucks for a 48-page story. I think they threw some extra pages in there. But it's oversized. I, I'll just say it. I like the original coloring. It is more comic booky. It's very psychedelic to me. Lots of reds and yellows and greens, especially when you get into some of the carnival scenes. It, it, it's very much a head trip. You know, with the recoloring, one of my favorite things about Batman is the yellow oval. They take that, they remove that from Batman here. It, it's very toned down colors. You get these flashback scenes that are very Schindler's List, black, white, and red. Some of it works, but I, I do like the original coloring more. I found the flashback scenes to be, their coloring in my version, to be too heavy-handed. Too much calling out what it was I was seeing. Because what these flashbacks are is the Joker's origin story. And I honestly think if it hadn't been for the color shifts, I might have been surprised when I found out at the end that what I'm seeing is the creation of the Joker. But it's there. It's told through visuals, but it's never told... You don't know the Joker's real name, so you just see a story of a guy who's trying to be a stand-up comedian who's not very funny, who has a wife with a child on the way and trying to make a living and ends up turning to do, you know, the proverbial one last job to get himself set. I don't know if it hadn't been just screamed in every color that this is a Joker flashback that I wouldn't have at the end been surprised and gone, Oh, it's a flashback. Well, in the original coloring, instead of the black and white, it's more of a sepia tone. There is a different okay color scale to it. And even at 12, I knew those were flashbacks to the Joker story. And it was my first time reading it. That It didn't hit me as a surprise when I read it. Okay, I could only guess at what the original colorings would be like. So that's good to know that they didn't ruin that surprise for me that way. The Joker having an origin story, you know, it seems like the comics we're hitting on, we've done... Batman's origin retold. We've done Batman year one and year two. And now we get the Joker's origin. Again, I'm going to ask what I usually ask. Is this canonical? Is this the Joker's origin? Well, I think to Tim Burton, it is. I, I think on your deluxe hardcover edition, it even has a poll quote from Tim Burton. Like, this is the best Batman story ever. I think it's the only one he read. <laughs> and I think he took it literally. So you have the Joker. He does this one-off crime job as the red hood. He has this big phallic shaped red hood on him. And I believe it was 1951, early fifties, there were some Batman stories about the red hood. And it was just this crime Lord who ran around with this red dome on him. And eventually he falls into a vat of chemicals while fighting Batman and becomes the Joker. You never know his real name there either. So I think Alan Moore, he really likes to play with the continuity. Hey, let's take this kind of like, crazy, stupid 50s thing, and let's update it and make it a little bit more realistic. So 
it has its roots in the older Batman comics, but there's a key part of the story here where I no one knows if this is the true origin story of the Joker because the Joker later calls out in the present day in this comic that the story, that flashback, it changes. And if he's going to have a past, he wants it to be multiple choice. He's an unre- he's the classic unreliable narrator. True. That, and I did catch that line. So I, I took, but I also took it as the Joker may have had many backstories in his, you know, 50 year history. So maybe they're just saying, Oh, those others are just the stories they told. But this one, because he's not telling anybody, this one could be the real one. It could be. I mean, DC, I don't think they'll ever say what the Joker's true origin story is. Uh, you know, they might have in the past because you would expect that. But I think modern day sensibilities, it would be dumb to give a canonical origin story for the Joker. I mean, that's one of his defining points is he doesn't have a story. And the other thing that surprised me about this is after the long multi-issue graphic novels we've been covering, this is short. This is just 40 some pages. It is a single issue of a comic. Yeah, it's uh, again, I think it's called a prestige format, square bound. The original printing was it wasn't, you know, your your typical comic book, but it was square bound at a spine, no ads, but yeah, only about 48 pages. It starts with a scene I really liked, and Batman goes to visit Joker in Arkham Asylum, which, you know, there's something funny in and of itself of a man dressed like a bat walking willingly into a lunatic asylum. And I think Alan Moore is well aware of that. (laughs) You've read Watchmen. He can be critical of superheroes, and I think that's very intentional. I mean, one of my criticisms, actually, of Alan Moore is that I think he's a little too clever, that he plots his stuff out a little too heavy-handedly. I don't, when I read his stuff, I don't feel a lot of organic storytelling. He has a very specific story he wants to get across, very rigid. I mean, you look at the setup here, It again, very Watchmen-esque. The first panel of the story is similar to the last panel of the story. He did a whole issue of Watchmen like that, Fearful Symmetry, where Every panel is mirrored throughout the comic. He He's very much in these very rigid structures, which is odd because he's always talking about anarchy and chaos and, and magic. But uh... but I like some good symmetry in my writing. I like that on a second read, I caught that the first line that we see of text is the line of the joke the Joker's going to tell from the end. I'm, I'm not saying it's not satisfying. It's just that I do like more organic storytelling at times and some of my favorite writers you could tell they're surprised by where their stories are going now that could create a huge mess of storytelling well but alan moore tells a very well structured story you could tell he puts a lot of thought into it i like this conversation because it's batman coming to terms that one day they're going to kill each other he and the joker and it's this very one-sided conversation but I like seeing this insight into Batman. I mean, again, not read a lot of Batman comics, but I know this is his arch nemesis. So to see him try to have this conversation really meant something even to me. Yeah, it's a very different side of Batman. You know, we've talked about Miller's Batman, which is very brooding and gritty. And this is one that wants to talk things out and go, look, fighting is not going to solve our problems. We need to come to some kind of truce. We need to, you know, find some kind of peace with this and, and move on. Again, I, I, I gotta wonder, I, you know, I haven't read every Batman comic, but it, those themes of Batman and the Joker being mirror images of each other, that's so called out throughout this comic, you know, I, I gotta wonder if this is what really solidified it. But it's not really the Joker he's even talking to. The Joker has escaped and is 
plotting. Is this considered his ultimate plot? Is this the most dastardly he's been trying trying to drive Commissioner Gordon insane like he is? The Joker has this very shifting personality through the comics. You read his original appearance, and he, he's very grim, and he's committing all these crazy murders. And then you get into the comic code era, where he's more Cesar Romero, and he's just kind of goofy clown. And in the 70s, they started making him dark again, I think. You know, you think about Miller's Dark Knight Returns, bringing back this brooding, grim Batman. This is a hell of a Joker story. Like, this is a murderous evil, vile Joker in this story. And I have to say, I like it. It's a book with stakes. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what's going to happen next. Case in point, the first thing he does is shoot Barbara Gordon, who I know from the 60s cartoon, she's Batgirl. Yeah, and this this is a defining moment, not for Batman, not so much for the Joker, but for Batgirl. And this is, it's a really controversial moment. More recounts, because he's kind of tried to distance himself from this story now. And he said he went to the editor and said, hey, can I cripple Batgirl, Barbara Gordon? And the editor, according to Alan Moore, said, yeah, cripple the bitch. And I think because this has received a lot of feminist criticism and Alan Moore, uh, you know, being, I, I would say, a feminist probably himself, just from his politics that he talks about, I think he's tried to distance himself. This is a earlier Alan Moore that maybe would go for these more sensational tactics. And, and now this older one doesn't want to be so associated. And he says this is one of his weakest works and he's really tried to distance himself. But this totally changed Barbara Gordon, Batgirl. She went on, she kept her paralysis, was in a wheelchair, becomes a, a big computer hacker, computer specialist, and starts her own team, The Birds of Prey. I'm actually one of the five people who watched all the episodes of that WB show. So I knew of Oracle. Wow. So when I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, is this where she got paralyzed? It is. I mean, this is in canon. And it's funny because as controversial as this was, that we're going to take this woman and shoot her to serve the story about men and she's going to be crippled. When DC rebooted their continuity... Barbara Gordon, now this story still happened, but she's recovered from the injury and she has use of her legs again. And uh, there were so many Oracle fans that they were upset that they took her out of the wheelchair. They thought that was a really strong role model for those with physical challenges. The shooting of her is one thing. And I, I don't know that Alan Moore might have distanced himself from that. It's the fact that as she's laying on the ground, bleeding and crippled, the Joker then strips her naked. And is it implied that he raped her? I've always taken that way, even when I was 12. Like, that's what I thought. Maybe I was a messed up kid, but I always took it that maybe not rape, but there is definitely some molestation going on there. Yeah, I kind of get that impression because, I mean, to drive Gordon insane, first of all, Joker strips Gordon naked and has him paraded around this crazy carnival and then shows him pictures of Barbara naked and bleeding and she's making faces now yeah she was just shot i think this could be very much one of those the reader sees what the reader wants to see but i'm thinking that the joker he's going all the way on this one and crippling her is one thing but i think either raping her or having one of his goons rape her while she's crippled would take it to that next level to really demolish Gordon's spirit and mind. I mean, the whole plot here is Joker wants to prove a point that one bad day will make you go crazy. That's what happened to him. He lost his wife. 
and then fell into some chemicals and was disfigured. And that's what drove him crazy. That's his thesis. And Gordon is the experiment. He's going to give him one hell of a bad day here. His daughter is shot, perhaps molested. He's looking at pictures of her. He's been kidnapped, stripped going through this hellish carnival ride, listening to the Joker. I mean, you get this weird, grotesque song and dance number by the Joker and all these carnival freaks. I mean, this is a bad trip. And going back to the coloring, that's why I like the original coloring so more, because it looks like an acid trip, the way it was colored. The musical number, I would love to see this depicted like in animation style with Mark Hamill coming back, because I'm hearing Mark Hamill's voice the whole time I'm reading <laughs> the Joker's lines anyway. I'm not hearing Nicholson. I'm not hearing Ledger. I'm hearing Hamill. I can't help it, especially with this art and the lines he's given. But could you imagine the surreality if you had like one of these direct-to-DVD DC comics where you have Barbara Gordon shot and raped, and then let's cut to a musical number? That's Star Wars Holiday Special level weird. Yeah. <laughs> the more you contemplate it, the weirder it gets. I just, I loved it. I started making up a little tune in my oh, head no. to the <laughs> lyrics. I'm like, could I sing it for the podcast? <laughs> it's really, I really got into the musical number bit. I mean, the whole carnival is pretty horrific. One of the most shocking scenes is the Joker, and he's sitting on this, like, throne, and yeah, it's baby dolls, but it looks like just a pile of dead babies that he's sitting on. This is very much the Joker himself. As crazy as he is, he has gone over the edge in this story. Now, you mentioned it's all about the one bad day, and Batman had one bad day, and Joker comes pretty close to guessing what that bad day was. And he gives Gordon one hell of a bad day. But in the flashbacks, we see the Joker's bad day, and the bad day, again, unreliable narrator, but... His wife died in a baby bottle heating accident. Well, again, I think this is mirroring Batman. These are two people that had a bad day and had extreme reactions to it. And Batman, he has purpose, though. He watched his parents murdered by a criminal. As crazy as the logic might be, there is a clear line of logic you could draw. Kid sees his parents murdered, decides to fight crime, becomes a bat. The Joker, his origin story, if this is his origin is devoid of meaning. Like, he decides he's going to knock off a card company, card playing card manufacturer, to get money to help his pregnant wife, who then dies because of an electrical, what is it, a hairdryer falls in the bathtub or something? It's devoid of meaning. And I think it's just there to mirror that, like, we understand Batman because he lost his parents, but what if, like, the accident, what if your tragedy was totally nonsensical and pathetic? What would that do to you? Good insight. I hadn't gotten that, but I was like, I was trying to figure out if that was the joke of the Joker is your wife died stupidly. I think that is part of it is that that's when he lost purpose. So much of his purpose in this origin story is providing for his wife. He wants to be a comedian so he could make money, but he's no good at that. He's tried holding down other jobs like he's trying to be the good husband and then something really stupid takes away his purpose. But Gordon is stronger than either of these other two men. I really did like the moment in the comic where he's like, you bring Joker in by the book. Because you get the Batman may, like he said at the beginning, kill Joker in revenge for what Joker has done that day. Giving Batman a second bad day, I guess. But he goes, I'm bringing you in by the book because I want to. It shows that Batman has become stronger and Gordon is stronger than both of them because he doesn't crack under it. Yeah, you see Batman, he like you said, he starts off this story saying, we need to come at peace 
or we're going to end up killing each other. And by the time he gets to the carnival, he's tracked down where Gordon is. He's so filled with rage. He's like, I'm just going to kill the Joker. He stepped over the line this time. He shot Barbara. He's kidnapped Gordon. I, I've got to put an end to this. And I think it's that Gordon is that humanizing moment saying, no, you're going to do this by the book. We're better than him. And it ends with, a, again, a parallel of that opening conversation. I love this. And Batman trying to say, let's work it out. And Joker's like, nah. Yeah, he tells a joke and they both have a good laugh. The joke, though, I mean, the joke, I, I don't get it. Well, <laughs> because it's it's a story about two men in an insane asylum, much like Batman and Joker or Joker's double were at the beginning of the comic. They find a way to escape. One makes it, the other won't make the leap. I'm taking it that Batman's the one who made it, Joker's the one who won't make the leap? Is that the symbolism there? Well, Batman had just had a conversation with the Joker. Before the Joker tells his joke, he says, I could help you, I could get you rehabilitation, I could change this. And the Joker has that moment where he could go, yeah, let's let's fix this. I, I think a plot point that would be interesting is, would the Batman then reform himself if the Joker did? But they don't get into that conversation. And maybe that's the point of the joke, is that the Joker would save himself, but Batman wouldn't. That Batman would be afraid to make that change. Maybe it's reversing it, and Batman is the crazier one here, and the Joker is trying to save him. I mean, with more... Never count out that the good guy is really crazier and, and worse than the bad guy. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. Rorschach proves that. But the punchline is the second guy won't come because the light would be turned off when he's halfway across. So it shows paralysis of fear on behalf of the one who chooses to stay insane, where there's complete distrust of their partner, even though they went that far. So I'm, I'm really analyzing this. It's not a joke. It's a riddle. It's, it is. <laughs> and it's me trying to figure out. And perhaps it's one of those, you know, there are so many stories I've read where they're intentionally written. So you can interpret it a thousand different ways and none are right and none are wrong because the author worked so damn hard to make it all correct. But here I'm like, is this whole story an allegory for Batman and Joker? Are they the two in the insane asylum? And if so, which one stayed behind and why don't they trust the one with the light? This is an ending that I have pawned over probably more than just about any ending in comics. Even at 12, I said this might not be appropriate for a 12 year old because of some of the brutality and perhaps implied rape that goes on but even at 12 this last page is something i would sit and reread and ponder on trying to figure out what the punchline meant what what was trying to be said i mean it's there's a lot to ponder there and you know i kind of criticize more by trying to be a little too clever you have this whole conversation about this beam of light that one of the crazy people has to cross the last few panels it's the rain falling, the ground getting wet, and the cops pulling up. And as the cops pull up to this carnival, you see the headlight. It, it's starting to make a beam across the ground as it's getting wet, reflecting off the water. But it's never quite complete. Again, I don't know what it symbolizes. I, I, is it just a parallel to the joke? But I, I think it's clever, and I like that it ties into that joke with that incomplete beam of light. Yeah, it's great. And I think it's telling of all the comics we've reviewed here on Books and Nachos. This is the only one I read twice. It helps that it was the shortest, but it's the only one that I felt compelled. Like, I not only feel I need to read that again before I discuss it, I want to read that again before I discuss it. I gotta ask you, Arnie, what did you think of Brian Boland's art in this? 
Again, I saw the remastered one, but I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. I especially liked the Joker's face. I mean, this is a Joker starring comic. He has the most lines. He has the most panels. And it's very much in line with what I've come to expect. And I like what was done with light and shadow in this remastered one. I didn't care for some of the haughtiness of the flashbacks with the one red item that's usually food. That seemed, you know, that's something I didn't contemplate as much as I contemplated the riddle because that felt like artistic douchebaggery versus something that actually had symbolic meaning. The shrimp is red. The hood is red. The cape is red. It's just like, nah, not really going with that. But the rest of it, I really liked the detail and the mood of all of it of, of all the comics we've reviewed this may have my favorite art no this does have my favorite art i, I know it does because you've given it actual compliments i mean i <laughs> brian boland comes from the uk he got his start with 2000 ad which is the the classic uk comic anthology i knew his work for, he did a lot of the early judge dread stuff which was just short six or eight page comics but even that i mean that was that's a weekly series 2000 ad so to be able to churn out, you know, that many pages every week or every couple of weeks is quite a, a compliment on the, on the guy's speed and dedication and how clean his line work is here in the killing joke. Very detailed. A lot of his stuff nowadays are just covers because he is so detailed in his line work. But again, for me, at least with Miller, Mazzuccelli and now Brian Boland, I, all three very solid levels of art, uh, except that's Dark Knight Strikes Again. See, you mentioned it does cover art. I could see that because almost every panel of this comic could be a cover. And I bet every panel of this comic is a tattoo. <laughs> a lot of classic images. I'm sure we could reassemble this in a number. If we go to Comic-Con, we could find all the fans and just reassemble the comic, including the rape scene. Yeah, I, I was going to say I want to stay away from the fans that have those tattooed on it. <laughs> so I think it's pretty clear that we both highly, highly recommend The Killing Joke. It does say on the cover that Tim Burton says this is his favorite Batman comic. Well, Tim, mine too. I don't know if it's my favorite Batman one, but it is way up there. It's a, it's probably my favorite Joker story, because uh, that's what it really is. Uh, Batman is more of a, he shows up at the beginning, shows up at the end, doesn't do a whole lot in between. But a strong Joker story, a strong Batman universe story, very high recommend. And I do really like the fact that we had one strong Batman story one strong Gordon story, and one strong Joker story. It feels like I picked the ones that the film's creators kept name-dropping, but I feel like just by that happenstance and the fact that these are the famous ones, these are the recognized ones, that they complement each other so damn well. Yeah, I mean, these are the ones that highlight the superhero the most, the super villain the most, the crazy Joker, and then the humanizing factor, Gordon, who is always like that middle ground. He wants to fight crime, but he ain't going to dress up like an animal to do it. He's very human, and all of these stories have had those characters in them, and, and they all play those roles, and these are the you know three strongest stories for those three characters, which I really think are the backbone of the Batman universe, Batman, Joker, and Gordon. Well, Jacob, thank you again for joining me over here at Books and Nachos. And for listeners who want to hear us keep talking Batman, head over to NowPlayingPodcast.com because the whole reason I was inspired to even look at these is because Jacob is the Batman super fan and we are doing the Batman movies at NowPlayingPodcast.com leading up to this summer's, gotta say, pretty awesome looking The Dark Knight 
Rises. I'm super excited for it, and I, I can't wait to talk about all the Nolan films, uh, talk about the things he takes from these comics and ties in the nods, and I'm interested to see what he does with Bane. Maybe you'll read those Dark Knight Falls comics where Bane breaks Batman's back, and we'll come back and discuss those if you like that Nolan one. Enough. Maybe we will. It all depends. Uh, gotta say, nothing in Batman and Robin made me inspired to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very different Bane than I think what Nolan's going to give us. But it was your commentary in those podcasts, Jacob, as well as the stuff in the bonus features that really made me think this is something I need to read. It was during the recording of those podcasts that I just said, I'm going to go read this because of what you said. So maybe when we get to those Nolan ones, this will happen again and we'll be back here on Books and Nachos. But until then, listeners, thank you for joining us through this series. And remember, support your local bookstore or local comic shop. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.